Well, good morning, friends, and welcome to Advent. Isn't it great that it's already come? Um, whether you've been caught by surprise or whether you've been waiting for a while, it's finally here, and I love Advent. The decorations, the music, the movies, the sense of anticipation. If you visited the Christmas district or the Christmas market down in the distillery district in Toronto, you'll know that they have fabulous light displays, and one of them counts down the days until Christmas. And, uh, and that's what we are doing. We're anticipating the coming of Christmas. And as we do, uh, we're in a Christmas series called Christmas Lists, because there's all kinds of lists that we have at Christmas. Uh, lists about um, things we, we need to buy, groceries we need to get, um, uh, friends we'd like to see, maybe some events. We, we, we start to kind of organize our calendar and choose what we're going to pick to go to and what we can't quite fit in this year. But there's all kinds of lists, and it's great when our to-do list becomes a got or done list. Um, imagine, though, if God was making a list for you this Christmas. If you came into the kitchen in the morning and there on the, uh, on the refrigerator was a, a piece of paper hung up by the magnet with a to-do list from God. What would he put on your Christmas list this year? What would he want you to focus on? Well, that's our theme, and that's what we are going to be doing over the next number of weeks as we count down to Christmas. We're going to be looking at the list that God has for us. And each week we're going to explore a different thing that might be on that list, and we're going to go into the scriptures and we're going to spend some time focusing in on that. And then we are going to do an activity that's going to allow us to really seek out God in the midst uh, of our, as we draw closer uh, to God during Advent. So that's the rhythm. There's a, there's, a, there's a word, which is an action item. So there's an action, and then there's an exercise. And we're going to be doing both of them through this rhythm as we move towards Christmas. And the exercise that we're doing, we're actually going to m practice it here together and then we're going to give you an opportunity to do it at home. So we have uh, online and uh, on the tables, um, you can pick up the exercise and you can do it on your own throughout the week as well, or maybe with your family. And so that's the rhythm, got it? Um, uh, an, ac an action and an exercise, a word and a practice. And the first word is this, longing. Longing fits well as we, uh, as we come to Advent, but it's not just a Christmas thing. It's all the way through the Bible. A longing for redemption. A longing for justice and peace. A longing for things to be made right. A longing for exile to end. A longing for the Savior to come. Romans chapter 8 tells us that even creation longs for redemption, longs for God's restoration to be complete. And God has placed a longing in our hearts. We see it everywhere. We have this longing as people. It's right across our culture. It's why advertising works. Uh, it's why we want, to, we, we want more, we, and it's why we have so much stuff, and we want more because we have this longing to be satisfied, but ultimately your longing is a longing for God. There is an empty place in our souls that only God can fill. St. Augustine writes, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. 
The psalmist describes it this way as they think about their longing. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? If you think about it, every craving in your heart ultimately arises from a longing for God. And often we take those longings and we try to fulfill them in ways uh, that, that are not godly. Through achievement or through relationships or through the accumulation of stuff. And it's not that all those things are wrong. It's just that they ultimately will not satisfy them. And, we, and often we, we try to use them as a substitute for God and we pursue them in ways and we twist them in ways that it leads us to temptation. Instead of turning to God and asking him to satisfy our souls, we turn to other things. We settle for substitutes. And we get addicted to hurry and to efficiency and to reputation and to pleasure and, our, and to our attachments. And in the end, they leave us wanting more, longing for more. Now, longing is a good thing. Longing is a gift from God. It was given to you by God. It's a gift of grace because longing can be your ticket home if you allow it to draw you towards God. So as we move into the season of Advent and as we journey towards Christmas, my encouragement is this. Don't settle for trinkets. Don't go after substitutes. Pursue the pearl of great price. Long for a deepening relationship with God. Advent is a journey of joy that begins with longing. In the Old Testament, the people were longing. They were longing for change to come and for things to be made right. They were longing for a righteous king to come and to rule over them, a king who would rule as if he were God himself, one who would rule with righteousness, one who would stand on the side of the widow and the orphan and the immigrant and the poor and the oppressed and the disadvantaged and the lonely and the discouraged. One who would lead in such a way that everyone who was on the outside would be given access to the good things and to the blessings of the kingdom of God. They would be invited to come in. There's a place at the table for you. And this kingdom would be a place of mercy and grace and peace and love and righteousness. And it's not just a dream, it's a reality when the king comes. And by the way, those same characteristics that they were longing for then should be evidence in our midst as a community today. They should be, we should be a community that exemplifies and where people discover those things as well. But for those in the Old Testament, this was simply a longing. It was far from a reality. Now, sometimes they would have good kings who would rule them in a godly way, but mostly they had kings and leaders who were corrupted by sin and many of their kings were cowards who sought their own good and not the good of the people. And following their earthly king, the people of God began to live with compromise. They sought to fulfill their longings with earthly things, and they became estranged, caught up in materialism and sin. They walked outside of the way of God. They lost sight of the goodness of God. And the light of God did not shine through their life. And the result is that they ended up far from the kingdom. Sin will always take you where you do not want to go. It will keep you longer than you intended to stay. 
and it will hurt you deeper than you thought it would. And because of their sin, the people are defeated. They are taken away, and they find themselves exiled. And from the pain and loneliness of captivity, they long for the king to come, to rescue them, to restore them to the way of God, the goodness of God, and the light of God. And in the midst of those dark days in exile, their hope was lifted up through prophetic messages that come to them, sometimes almost hidden in obscure ways, But there it is, the thread of hope, all the way through the Old Testament. For example, Micah chapter 5, which says to those who were living in darkness, in captivity, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one, come for me, one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times." And so this prophecy is about a time when Israel would be brought back from captivity by a great king who would restore and lead the people. Light is promised to those in darkness. And the prophecy goes on to describe this king. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be our peace. This is what they longed for. It's a word of hope in the midst of a world that seems to be falling apart and decaying. And man, is it a word we need for today. Because there is so much darkness and division and chaos and brokenness and sin. And we need the king to come. The king to come into our lives, the king to come into our church, the king to come to our community, our nation, our world. And we as as children of the king begin to bring everything under his reign and under his rule. And we say, God, your kingdom come in my life, in my family, in, in our world, Lord. Your kingdom come, may it be even here as it will be in heaven. That's what we long for. King Jesus, come. And that's why we long for Christmas. I want to root this word of longing in a Christmas passage that often we actually skip right over. Or we get past so we can get to the good stuff. And we find it in Luke chapter 1. And I want to invite you to open your Bible to Luke chapter 1, the Gospel of Luke. And in chapter 1 we find the story of Elizabeth. And as you come to it and as you find it, I want you to think about this. What are you longing for this Christmas? If we were to pray this morning and say, why don't you ask God for anything? What would you ask God for? What's one thing you would like from God this Christmas? I mean, when I think about it, I think, well, the answer should be wisdom, right? Because when Solomon was asked, I'll give you anything, he said, give me wisdom. And that was the right answer. So I should ask for wisdom. But I, I really don't want wisdom. Um, there's other things I want more. Maybe I should pray for revival. Because we want revival to come. That seems to be the right thing. 
In, in a silly moment, I might want the Leafs to win the Stanley Cup again, uh, but we're told not to put the Lord your God to the test, so we won't ask for that one as well. I mean, like, what is it that you want? What are you longing for? And as you think about that, I want to give you a couple of other questions, five other questions that arise right out of this passage in Luke chapter 1. And the first one is this. Is it even okay for me to long? We sometimes think as Christians, it's selfish to think about ourselves and what our own needs are. It seems far more righteous to ignore our hurts and ignore our wants. But the reason I, I think it's actually good to ask the question and to long and to become self-aware is because Jesus, throughout his time on earth, over and over again, asked people, what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? In fact, in Mark chapter 10, he asked the question twice to two different people, groups of people, in one chapter. The first time he asked it to, in response to Bartimaeus, who was a blind beggar on the side of the road, crying out for help. And Jesus hears him, zeroes right in on him, and says, what do you want me to do for you? And I feel like Bartimaeus should have said, well, isn't it obvious? But he doesn't. In humility and in surrender, he comes and he says, Rabbi, teacher, I want to see. And he is healed. A few verses later, James and John, two of the disciples, are arguing. And Jesus turns to them and says, what is it that you guys want me to do for you? And they respond, let us sit beside you in glory, one on your right and one on your left. That's what we would like. Now, this is not a pure desire. What the sons of thunder are longing for is power. We want to be in charge, Jesus. We want to be in the platinum seats. Can you make that happen? And even though their longing is self-focused, Jesus still responds graciously. Listening to Jesus, you can almost feel his compassion for them when he says, you do not know what you're asking for. And in Matthew, he adds the detail of Jesus saying, are you actually able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? So whether our desires are pure or, and beautiful or not, whether they are right or whether our desires are selfish, and a little bit bent towards ourselves, isn't it better to bring them all to Jesus? Say, Jesus, this is what I'm dealing with. This is what I'm struggling with. This is what I'm, I'm fearful of. This is what I'm excited about. This is what I really want. And let Jesus begin to help us unpack those things and sort those things out. There's always a gracious response of grace and truth with Jesus. Author Ruth Haley Barton says, that, says this, these desires lurk within all of us. And that is why giving, giving any attention to all these desires feels like opening up Pandora's box. But it's even riskier to refuse to acknowledge what's real within us. Because whether we acknowledge them or not, these dynamics are at work wielding a subterranean power over us. Their power only gets stronger the longer we repress them. How much safer is it for ourselves and everyone around us if we would open up our desires in Jesus' presence and allow him to help us sift through them? 
opening up our longing in Jesus's presence. Even when we're not sure which parts are true and which parts are false. It's a humbling, trusting gesture that gives God the chance to to sort it out with us. In Forbes magazine, there was an article that asked readers what they most wanted in life. What do you want? And they, they, they came up with, these were the top seven answers. Number one, happiness. Number two, money. Now, I'm actually pleased that money wasn't number one, um, so that's good. Then it went freedom, peace, balance, fulfillment, and confidence. And I think that's actually not a bad list. Like, there's some hints of the kingdom of God there. Often at the core of our longings for things is a longing for God as well. And so here's a few other longings that I would want to add to Forbes' list. Because I think they come from a deeper place. A longing for intimacy. To be known and loved and connected. A longing for purpose. Purpose that our life matters, giving you a reason to get up and keep going each morning. A longing for healing, whether that be physical or emotional or spiritual or mental. A longing for family. We want to be part of a people. We want to belong, have a place where, we, where we're known and where we, where we love, are loved. And a longing for eternity. To know that this life is not meaningless and that there is hope beyond the grave and God really is just getting started. And when we pay attention to those longings, we tap into the deepest dynamic in the spiritual life. And Jesus meets us there. Because I think these longings and becoming aware of them is an indication that the Holy Spirit's already working in your life. Drawing us to God. We love, the scripture says, because he initiated. He first loved us. And all of these longings are ultimately what draw us to faith in Jesus. And that's why we sing at Christmas, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Once we acknowledge our longings, it inevitably brings us to a place of waiting. And that's where we find Elizabeth. In Luke chapter 1, she is waiting and she is longing for a child. Let's read read it together from Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. It says this, this, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth, who was also a descendant of Aaron, Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and decrees blamelessly. Wow, what a description. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Now notice, it was Elizabeth who is blamed because she's unable to conceive. It's kind of laid at her feet. And this summer, Jen Viss beautifully unpacked for us the story of Sarah and Abraham and and how to be uh, childless in that culture was disastrous. Uh, Economically, socially, economically, because you had to rely on your family and your offspring to take care of you when you were old. If you had no children, there's no social security net 
to actually help you. But far more so was the social stigma that was there, that you were seen as an outsider, that you were seen as someone who, who obviously must have messed up in one way or another because God had not given you the very thing you were longing for. And so she, she sits under scrutiny and shame and she waits. And the book of Proverbs wisdom tells us hope deferred makes the heart sick. And you can almost feel Elizabeth's heart sick uh, soul waiting and waiting and waiting. Which brings us to this question. Will I be holy in the waiting? When you think about what you're longing for, what you want in your life this Christmas, what, what you would love God to do in the world or um, around you, will you be holy as you wait for that to come? In verse 6, Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah are both called righteous. Now, righteous is, uh, is rarely used to describe a, a woman in the scriptures. But Elizabeth is called righteous here, and it's very significant. She's actually said that she lived her life in a way that was blameless. Even though she has waited for years and she has suffered for years, her heart has not grown cold towards God. She has not given in to bitterness or used her pain as an excuse to sin or lash out. She has remained tender to the presence of God and committed to God's way. And perhaps today you are waiting for a good thing to happen in your life or in our church or in the world. And you feel like, man, I have waited for this for so long. Don't let your waiting take you off the path of righteousness. Keep displaying the fruit of the Spirit. Keep living according to the Word. Wait with God even as you wait for God. Counselor and author, um, Elise Fitzpatrick writes this. She says, if you are willing to sin to obtain your goal, or if you sin when you don't get what you want, then your desire has taken God's place and you are functioning as an idolater. Perhaps you're waiting for something good. I'm waiting for a spouse. I'm waiting for a child. I'm waiting for a new job. I'm waiting for healing for myself or for others or someone that I love. I'm waiting for a new place to live. I'm waiting for a breakthrough in that relationship. I'm waiting for restoration in my marriage. I'm waiting for reconciliation within our family. And maybe it feels like Narnia. Always winter, never Christmas. My question is, can you remain tender towards God even as, you, as, you, as your longing remains unfulfilled? Can you wait with hope and let your longing draw you closer to God, knowing that one day things will be made right and the King will come. Because sometimes that happens dramatically. Miracles happen. And we're called to pray for them. Pray for them for each other. James chapter 5 says to us, pray for each other that you might be healed, that the kingdom of God might come. For the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Oh God, that you would rend the heavens and come down and that it would happen in our day. We've, we've heard of your fame. We know what you've done, your deeds in the past. We want to see it today, Lord. And we're called to cry out and to pray for those things to come. And they do. And they can. But sometimes they come slowly. 
And sometimes they come, but not in this lifetime. And we don't know the reasons why. Why our prayers are not always answered exactly as we wish. So we wonder, what will happen to my faith if I'm disappointed? Can I keep on believing? Can I keep on trusting God when it seems dark and when he seems silent? This is the kind of faith we see with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. King Nebuchadnezzar threatens them. And he says, if you don't bow down to this idol and worship it, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. Now think about where they are. They're in exile. They've been waiting. They've been wondering, is God ever going to show up? And now their life is on the line. And this is how these heroes respond in Daniel chapter 3. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from, from your majesty's hands. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Even if God does not respond the way we want, in the timing we want, we will still choose to follow him. We will not turn away. I actually think it was harder for Elizabeth. Because see, it's one thing to go out in a blaze of glory. It's, a, it's another thing to live faithfully into your old age, holding on to this tension that God is able, but even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, decade after decade after decade, I will trust and I will follow. There are plenty of godly women and men, heroes of the faith, who have died without seeing their prayers answered and their longings fulfilled. And that is the real test of faith. I think of some people who I've prayed with over the years, things that they have prayed for their families or prayed for, uh, for their church or for their community, and they were faithful and they did not see the answer. And then years later, the answer came and I'm like, oh man, I wish they could have seen it. And then I remember, oh, they have and they are. And they are enjoying this and they will. God answered the prayer. But the question is, can you hold on? Can you hold on till heaven? And for now, not get cynical, not get jaded, not get bitter. Even in the midst of heartache and pain and longing and waiting, can you ask God to make you sweet and tender, joyful and trusting? Steadfast and persevering in what you're praying for. So if I do not get my prayer answered the way I want, how do I respond? But here's another question. What if God answers your prayer? Am I ready for my prayers to be answered? Because one day, remarkably, one day, almost randomly, Elizabeth's longing is fulfilled. Their prayer is answered in their old age. I imagine or I wonder if they had actually already given up hope. 
Zechariah is not ready for it. This announcement of John the Baptist's birth was a signal that God was at work. The fulfill, he was fulfilling his promises that had been made centuries before. Aslan's on the move. And, and, and the story kind of moves over to Zechariah, and we're not going to be able to unpack all this because we're talking about Elizabeth today. But it's an incredible story. Zechariah is a priest, and he's given the rare honor of offering prayers and worship and intercession for the people in the holy place of the temple. And while he's doing this, he must have slipped in his own prayer as well. Because in verse 13, we read that an angel appears to him and says, Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son and you will call him John. And it had taken place so long, it had taken so long to come that Zechariah actually has trouble believing it. He is lost for words, literally. And in response to his unbelief, God leaves him in that, makes him mute and leaves him there until the time that John is born. You see, he's struggling to trust what God is doing. Think about that in the context of your, what you're longing for. Will you trust God? Will you cling to him? Will you remain faithful to him when your desire is fulfilled? Because often that's not what happens. God answers our prayer and we get excited, we get happy, and we just start to drift a little bit. We forget to give thanks for what God has given to us. When the crisis is past, we move on. But despite his struggle to believe, Zechariah remains faithful. And soon, despite the fact that he cannot speak, everyone in the nation hears their story. I love what N.T. Wright says. He says this, God regularly works through ordinary people doing what they normally do, who with a mixture of half faith and half devotion are holding themselves ready for whatever God has in mind. Think about that the next time you feel unqualified or the next time you feel like your faith isn't enough. God regularly works through ordinary people like you and me, doing what they normally do, who with a mixture of half faith and half devotion are holding themselves ready for whatever God has in mind. And God's answer is incredible to Elizabeth and Zechariah. They are going to have a child. And not only are they going to have a child, but this child is, is going to be amazing. No ordinary child. This is John the Baptist. This child would be great in the eyes of God, set apart from birth. He's going to turn the people back to God in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's going to prepare the way of the Lord, the coming of Jesus. And while Zechariah struggles to believe, Elizabeth is the one who understands and proclaims. She re-enters the passage in verse 25 and says this, The Lord has done this for me. In these days he has shown his favor and taken my way, my disgrace among the people. She gives glory to God for what he has done and what he is doing. And this would be a very appropriate place for it to say, and they lived happily ever after. But life is more complex than that and more real than that. And John's life would be hard. And it would be hard for his parents to watch his life. It is so hard as parents to watch our children suffer. And while John would be used mightily by God to prepare the way for Jesus, he would endure much suffering 
and he would die a martyr's death. I don't imagine this is at all what Elizabeth had in mind as she held and looked at her baby boy. Do you ever wonder how you will react if God actually answered your prayers? Right now? Have you ever wondered how do your longings fit into the bigger story of what God is doing? How will I respond? Here's a final question. How will I react when someone else is favored by God? Chapter 1 contains another announcement. This is the one we always skip to. The angel Gabriel visits a young virgin engaged to be married. He meets Mary. And while Zechariah's vision was, took place in the temple in the center of religious activity in front of the whole nation, the announcement comes to Mary privately with no fanfare in a little country town. If I was writing the story or if they were making up this story, it would be completely flipped. John's birth is exciting, but Jesus, Jesus is the real deal. He's the main character. He's the king they've been waiting for. So you would think that his story would be the big one told in the temple. But God chooses to announce his intentions for the Messiah quietly, obscurely. And God's fulfillment of his promise comes to earth in a humble, unadorned package, without grandeur far from the palace. Look at verse 38, at Mary's response to this angelic visitation. It is so different from Zechariah's. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your, word be be, may your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. And now look down at verse 39. It says this, At this time Mary got up and hurried to a town in the, in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and, and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. So these two women sit down, and they get caught up in this conversation about God's eternal plan of salvation. And it is a beautiful, rare conversation between two women in the Bible. It passes the Bechtel test in every single way. See, Zechariah, he can't talk. Elizabeth can. And she is prophesying and theologically declaring the truth about God's activity. And she is the first one who actually declares that this child is the Lord. This is the Messiah. This is the King. And in verse 42, it says that she, she let out a loud cry. And by the way, this is the first time that term loud cry is used in Luke. And Luke, um, he prefers this term. And if you actually study it, it shows up over and over again as God's plan of salvation unfolds. And the last time we come to it is Jesus on the cross, crying out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And as soon as Elizabeth hears that Mary has come, she's filled with joy. She is on fire she is prophesying. She's yelling it out. She's declaring the truth. And I think it is beautiful here to note that there is a, an older woman who is, who is drawing attention to God's work in the life of a younger woman. 
This is a moment of affirmation, a moment of, of confidence being come. And for those of you who find yourself older, look for opportunities to bless and encourage those who are younger, particularly in their faith. Don't underestimate the power of an older person, particularly moms and dads or mentors, speaking into a young person's life and saying, you know what, I see God working in you. You may not understand it. You may not see it yourself, but I'm telling you God's hands at work in your life. Don't be afraid. Don't back off. You are, what God is doing is good and you are blessed. Oh, that we would speak that over each other and encourage and call out faith in one another. Don't ever underestimate it. And this incredible conversation carries on and there isn't a hint of comparison or jealousy. Think about the differences. Mary is young, Elizabeth is old, John will be great, Jesus will be greater. Elizabeth is not jealous. Even though Elizabeth has waited years and years and years and Mary hasn't waited at all. Even though Mary doesn't even ask for a baby and she wasn't even married, she hasn't proven herself in any way and yet she gets a baby and not just any baby. I get John the Baptist, she gets the Messiah. Elizabeth doesn't do that. Instead, she enters into Mary's joy. And what a contrast there is here as you think back to the Old Testament between other sets of women longing for children. Sarah and Hagar, Leah and Rachel, they become rivals. But Mary and Elizabeth are not rivals, they're friends. They actually are mutually supportive of each other and their understanding of each other. And Elizabeth finds this genuine joy in Mary's supernatural favor. She's like a forerunner for Mary in the same way that John will be a forerunner for Jesus. And as you wait for your longing, can you rejoice when God blesses others? Maybe with the very thing you're longing to receive. Can you surrender comparison? Can you bury bitterness? Can you get rid of jealousy and rivalry and can you give it all to God and say, God, I want to be joyful for my friend. I'm thankful that you've blessed them, that you've answered their longing and I'm going to rejoice and I'm going to encourage them. Can you do that? Just like the people in the Old Testament waited for God to come, so we too wait for Jesus to show up in our lives. And our personal longings are ultimately symptoms of a longing for him, a longing for his kingdom to come in its fullness, a longing for the return of Christ. The psalmist says it this way, Whom have I have in heaven but you, O God? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. You're the one. You're the one I choose. And it's beautiful that in Luke chapter 1, God actually answers two prayers and two longings with one event. The longing of Elizabeth to have a child and the grander longing of the whole world for redemption that she doesn't even fully understand. What's amazing is that when God acts in the large scale, he takes care of us personally, true, uh, personally as well. Even in the drama of Christmas, the huge redemptive plan, I'm telling you, God knows what you're longing for today. He knows what you put on your list. God cares about your prayers, your longings, your desires. He's given them to you as a hint of something bigger that he's up to, as an invitation to draw close to him. And, and in our response, I want you to hear Jesus say, bring those longings to me. Open them up before me. 
Because hope deferred makes the heart sick. But a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Let me fulfill your longings. We find it in Jesus. Oh, come, let us adore him. So that's the action. Longing. And now we come to the exercise. Normally we immediately start with singing, but we're going to respond a little differently today. What I'd like us to do is actually listen to scripture before we sing. We're going to do a simple exercise called Lectio Divina. It sounds rather impressive, but it simply means, it's a Latin term that means divine reading. By the way, you can make anything sound impressive if you say it in Latin. Um, Later on today, some of you are going to sleep. When someone says, what are you doing? You say, I'm doing Napio Divina, divine sleeping. It just sounds far more spiritual. If you want more information about this, by the way, this exercise, like I said, it's available on the tables. You can pick that up along with our talking points notes, and you can pick that up. But I want to come actually back to the story of Bartimaeus, told to us in Mark chapter 10. And here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you just to get comfortable. Um, Some of you may have fallen asleep. If your neighbor's there, gently wake them up. And just reposition yourself and put your feet in front of you, kind of open yourself up, if you will, You're just being aware that God is here. He's been speaking to us through his word, through the worship, through the prayers. And we want to slow down and listen to him now. If you're comfortable, close your eyes. And just become aware that God's presence is here. And and just enjoy the fact that God is sitting with you now. And he's speaking to you. And we're just going to be looking at his word. I want you to imagine yourself in the historical setting of Bartimaeus. Sitting with him on the side of the road. Outside of Jericho. Waiting for Jesus to come along. And as you do, think about your own need. What is it that you're longing for? And I'm simply going to read the story. And as I do, I want you to allow the words to sink in. Listen for a word that catches your attention. Maybe that stands out above the other words or that kind of tugs at you as an invitation to go deeper. And just hold on to that word or that phrase. And just uh, just hold it, even as the rest of the passage is read. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting beside the road, begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus! Son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man. Cheer up. On your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his coat aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. I'm going to read this passage again. And this time I want you to take that word or that phrase and just meditate it on and say, God, do you have anything more you want to say about this? And you have permission to leave the confines of the exact story and just allow God to guide your thoughts about that word or phrase. What images come to mind? What, what emotions or memories get invoked? And just, just trust that God has heard your prayer and that he's seeking to speak to you exactly where you are and to clarify. Savor the thoughts that come to you. Then they came to Jericho. And, Jeru- and Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting beside the roadside, begging. When he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped. And said, call him. So they called to the blind man. Cheer up. Up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. I'm going to read the passage a third time now. And this time I want you to think about how you're going to respond to this word that God has been speaking to you, this word that you've heard. Is there something that God wants you to remember or do or take hold of? What do you desire to say to God or ask of God? Maybe it's as simple as simply saying thanks and allowing God to speak to you. Then they came to Jericho, 
And Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting beside the roadside, begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called the blind man. Cheer up. Up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. I'm going to read it one last time. And this time, let your gratitude be expressed to God for his living word that we encountered God in the pages of Scripture. And if there's an action that you feel like God has called you to, then just commit yourself to doing that and ask for God's blessing to come to you. And even if you've heard nothing, know that Jesus is pleased that you've wanted to spend this time with him, that you've set aside a time and said, Lord, I'm listening. I'm longing and I'm listening to you. Receive my praise. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called the blind man, Cheer up, up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Longing and listening. God's Christmas list for you.